wanted to mention before I get into the sermon today that uh, the TW Now this past week was on social media, and if you haven't seen it, uh, which many of you are working so you don't have the opportunity during the day, but it is still online and you can go back and watch it. A very fine program. Uh, we tried something different. I say we, those over there that were working with it. We Skyped in Mr. Jonathan McNair, and there were a number of, uh, I'd say, uh, technical uh, glitches this time, uh, not uh, something that would be uh, a problem for us to see it, but the the content of it, it was just outstanding. Uh, Dr. Scott Winnale and Mr. Um, uh, Wakefield and Jonathan McNair and Wyatt Soselka was the moderator for it. Very good information. I hope all of you will take the time to uh, to watch that and also to uh, read the article that I wrote concerning the same subject. And so much is coming out right now about the problems with social media and how the very founders of it don't allow their children to be on it until they're 13, 14 years of age. In fact, I heard just this uh, last week or the week before that um, an expert talking about it and said that no child under 14 should be on social media. And he said he just cringes when he sees little children on, you know, with their, their smartphones. Not just social media, but the, the phones themselves. So you might want to prove it for yourself. I'm not saying that he knows everything. But I think it, it will do us well to really find out what is going on and what was the exact intent for social media. I talked about a little bit at the family weekend, but there's so much that's coming out almost daily uh, the problems with, with social media. It doesn't mean that you can't ever be on it, but it, it takes a lot of character and it helps to know what they're trying to actually do and what the dangers are because I think a lot of people have no idea that the dangers, it seems so innocent. Uh, just get on there and talk to your friends and so forth, but there are some major problems with what's going on. So I encourage you to uh, watch that TW now and keep up on any articles we have on the subject. Have you ever had a mental block where you understood the meaning of all the words, but when you put them all together, somehow they just don't make sense? Uh, speaking specifically of Paul's writings, uh, even the Apostle Peter said that some things that he wrote were hard to be understood, which the unlearned and the unstable twist to their own destruction. And he referred to lawless men, men who are against the law. One such passage of Scripture <clears throat> that I think of uh, many, many years ago, way back when I was an ambassador to college, and this was my, I think it was my senior year, it would have been, had to be. So that was 1968 or 69. Uh, that's a long time ago. For some of you, that's ancient history. Uh, you weren't even, uh, you know, your parents hadn't even thought about uh, having you or anything like that. Your parents might not have been born back that far. But anyway, uh, I'm still reminded of it. It's, it's found in Romans, the uh, fifth chapter, and verse 12, uh, 12, 13, and 14. Uh, somebody asked me at lunch what I was speaking on. I said uh, Romans, uh, Romans 5, <clears throat> verses 12 through 14, and they were all going to have to go and look it up. Uh, they knew the previous verses, but... This is a very uh, important passage of Scripture and very important to understand. And as I was uh, trying to figure it out way back in 19, 
68 or 69, whichever it was, uh, it, it just didn't make sense. And, and there were others trying to explain it to me. And finally, after maybe a half hour, uh, a light went on and I understood it, at least uh, part of it. Let's notice verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, that part probably sounds pretty normal, pretty uh, easy to understand. Uh, that's not the, the difficult part. It's what follows is more difficult. But what is it about this verse and the next two that are so important? Well, first of all, it's talking about the man Adam, that Adam sinned. And yet, when we look at what follows, uh, there are those who try to say that sin did not exist outside of Adam, that Adam sinned, and so his sin tainted all of us in the sense that we still have Adam's transgression uh, is, is our transgression. Uh, original sin is a uh, doctrine that, that comes through uh, for a number of reasons, but that's the way that they want to see it. Because in verse 13 it says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Now, this presents a, a bit of a problem because it sounds like he's saying that sin was there, but there was no law. And that's what it seems like on the surface. But we have some problems with that. Romans, the seventh chapter. We'll come back here in a moment. But Romans, the seventh chapter and verse seven, very familiar scripture to us, or at least it should be. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, very clearly there is talking about one of the Ten Commandments, the, the tenth one, as a matter of fact. But he said, I, I wouldn't have known what sin was except for the law. So uh, you have to ask the question, well, if there was sin from Adam until Moses, then there had to be a law. It would seem like it. Romans, the third chapter, and verse 20 Romans 3 and verse 20, another passage here in the book of Romans, which the whole book of Romans can be difficult to understand until you understand he's talking about justification. It's one of the major themes there. But in Romans 3 and verse 20, it says, Therefore, by the deeds or the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It is the law that gives us knowledge of sin. Now, let me read a couple uh, translations here. I'll have to go to my uh, trusty cell phone, which I was bad-mouthing here earlier. Uh, so somebody might have seen me playing with it before that and thought maybe I was uh, removed from Google account and synced devices. I don't know what that's about. Okay. That wasn't supposed to come up here. Here we go. Now, this is um, 
from the Living Bible. I chose Living Bible because it's a little clearer in terms of what the world tries to say about these scriptures. Uh, And I think it's a good reason not to trust the Living Bible very much for a lot of reasons, but this is one of them. But it, it articulates what, what Protestant and, and I don't suppose Catholic, but pro, certainly Protestant doctrine uh, is on this subject. It says, when Adam sinned, this is Romans 5, verse 12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. His sp- uh, sin spread death throughout all the world, so everything began to grow old and die. For all sinned. For all sinned. Well, at this point in time, there was Adam and Eve. They were animals, but uh, animals don't sin. Then in brackets it says, We know that it was Adam's sin that caused this because, although, of course, people were sinning from the time of Adam until Moses, God did not in those days judge them guilty of death for breaking his laws because he had not yet given them or given his laws to them, nor told them what he wanted them to do. So after Adam and Eve, of course, God told Adam what to do. But after that, I guess they were just all on their own. He didn't tell them what to do. So when their bodies died, it was not for their own sins, since they themselves had never disobeyed God's special law against eating the forbidden fruit as Adam had. Now, that's the way that many people in the world think of these passages, that, well, they're guilty of Adam's sin, but they're, they're totally innocent themselves. It's, it's Adam's sin that they're, they're concerned about. Now, a translation that presents a very different view is Farrar Fenton. And Farrar Fenton has, I think, a lot of problems in general. Mr. Armstrong used it for uh, several verses but I think that it really expresses an idea that is closer to what was intended by the Apostle Paul. It says, because as by one man sin entered the world and through the sin, through the sin, the death, and thus death passed into all men, supposing indeed that all sin. For law was in the world before sin. That's interesting. Law was in the world before sin. Now, when you think about it, that has to be so. Since, as we know from 1 John 3, 4, that sin is the transgression of the law, you can't have sin until you first have the law. You can't transgress something that does not exist. So he's got that part right. For sin would not be charged if a law did not exist. However, death reigned from Adam to Moses and over those who did not sin after the manner of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the future. So let's go back and let's just read it in the King James once again. But I think that that certainly gives a better sense of it. In verse 12, Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, he was the first one to sin, and death through sin... And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice that all sinned. All were guilty of sin. Not of Adam's sin, but their own sins. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. 
Now, when it says until the law, in other words, until the time, this is what the part that I had trouble understanding. It isn't that there was no law, but the law that was given uh, to Moses at that time, the time when the, the, when the uh, Ten Commandments were codified in a very uh, straightforward way, it's until that time, it says, sin was in the world, until um, the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type. So as Farrar Fenton points out, the transgression was not the exact same transgression in a, and I think we'd have to say in a physical sense, because spiritually we've all committed the same transgression, but it was a different way. It is not saying that the law did not exist, and we will see that today as we go through the scriptures, because the, the title of the sermon is that uh, uh, were the Ten Commandments enforced before Moses. Was there law before Moses? Was there law that people knew before Moses? Because the world likes to say that it was not. It's the idea that, well, there was sin, but it was kind of a general sense. It was just doing wrong, doing harm to somebody. It reminds me of discussions that we had when I was attending Sunday school or Protestant Youth Fellowship as a a teenager. And you'd get into these discussions about what is sin. And everybody would pontificate as to what they thought sin was. And the most common that I remember was that, well, sin is something that hurts other people. However, is that a true definition? Think about that for a moment. Uh, In a physical sense, do parents ever hurt their children? Well, when the kid is running out in the middle of the street, and going to get killed, you might give them an artificial pain, artificial hurt, you might say, as opposed to be hitting by a Mack truck. Uh, uh, we always pick on Mack trucks. I don't know why, but anyway, it's always a Mack truck that hits somebody. But we, <clears throat> we, we don't want him to get hit by that or a Corvette or a car or even a motorcycle. So we give him an artificial penalty to let him know that Certain things hurt in this life. Does God ever bring pain to us? Well, God sometimes punishes us to wake us up to something that we're doing. And the ultimate good is it's not harmful in the ultimate sense. But again, the, the sense that we had in Protestant Youth Fellowship was, well, you know, it, it, sin is hurting other people. We did not look to 1 John 3, verse 4, where sin is the transgression of the law. We did not have a Bible definition of sin. And so what happens is that people think that uh, prior to Moses, when they were kind of on their own, they were guilty of Moses, uh, not Moses, but Adam's sin, but they were on their own. Then Moses comes along and he gives us this law, and that lasts until the time of Christ and because it was too difficult, it was burdensome, then Christ did away with it. And so now we go back to that original state before Moses, where there is no law. And when you think about it, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, any logical sense. Now let's notice a few scriptures. Uh, what was Adam's punishment? What was the punishment of all those before Moses? 
Well, it was death. Adam was told that the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. In Romans, the sixth chapter, verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death. Or to put it another way, death is what we earn by sin. The wages of sin is death, or death is what we earn when we sin. Did anybody die before Moses? Of course they did. Did they die simply because of Adam? Or it says, all have sinned. It's also part of the scriptures that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that all applies to everyone who's ever lived except, of course, Jesus Christ. What were the laws that we know were in effect before Moses, from the time of Adam to Moses? Well, we know that one of them would be that We are to have no other gods before the true God. As we can see from Genesis 2, Adam was given a specific command. He was told not to eat of a particular tree. They disobeyed God, instead obeyed Satan, because he said, you will not surely die. He lied to them. They believed it. Adam and Eve, or at least Eve did. Adam was not deceived, as we read in Scripture, but Eve was. But Adam nevertheless ate of the fruit. He's the one that God holds most responsible in this. So they obeyed Satan rather than God. In Romans, the sixth chapter, Romans 6 and verse 16, Romans 6, verse 16, it says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death, sin leading to death, or of obedience to righteousness? So when they partook of the fruit, they were obeying Satan. In that sense, Satan was who they were worshiping as God. They put him before God himself. Now, in another sense, they were also worshiping themselves because they thought they knew better than God. So they put themselves above God. As we know, sin is a transgression of the law. And concerning 1 John 3, 4, the New Bible Commentary Revised says, Sin, he tells us, is lawlessness. That's what sin is. It's lawlessness. The Greek construction implying that the two are interchangeable, sin and lawlessness. They're they're equals. The law in question is, of course, the law of God. The essence of sin, then, is disregard for God's law. It is the assertion of oneself against God's revealed way for man. And when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, they were disregarding God and thinking that they knew better, setting themselves up as gods. In fact, Satan said, you will be as God, knowing good and evil. And so they were putting themselves up, but of course, they were really worshiping Satan because he was the one who was instigating that. What about bowing down to idols? Is there anything there in the Old Testament that tells us about bowing down to idols? Well, 
Let's look at Genesis, the 31, the 31st chapter, Genesis 30. Let me try that again. Genesis 31. 31st chapter. Get caught between 31st and 31. Genesis 31. And let's notice, uh, we, we could begin in verse 17. Uh, Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels. This was after uh, a period of 20 years or so, and he decided to uh, leave and get away from Laban, who kept changing his wages. And so he stole away in the middle of the night, so to speak, uh, when Laban was out working several days away. Uh, he did that. Uh, Laban had gone to shear his sheep. This is verse 19. And Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. Now, notice it says that he, she stole them. This is before Moses. So it is clear from that that she was doing something that was contrary to what was considered normal at that time. She was stealing something. Well, it might have been normal, but it is speaking of it as a theft. She stole the household idols. So we see that not only did she steal something, but it was the idols that her father uh, had. And so they got away. And verse 25, Laban overtook Jacob eventually. And Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. Verse 27, Laban says, Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me, and not tell me, for I might have sent you away with joy and songs with timbrel and harp? And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have gone done foolishly in so doing. It says, It is, verse 29, in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father. That's interesting. He didn't say your God, but he says the God of your father. He recognized that Isaac was his father. He said the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. Now, God was also Jacob's father, but I just thought that was interesting how he speaks of his father. That's you following in your father's footsteps, as it were. Verse 30, now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? And Jacob then replies, verse 32, with whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. So this was considered by Jacob to be a capital offense. If you find the gods here, your gods, then you can take that person's life, or please do. They considered it quite an offense to steal probably anything, but especially uh, their gods. It's like in the Old West. Horse thieves were strung up. It says, with whomever, verse 32, you find your gods, do not let him live. And it says here that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent and then Leah's tent and the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods, I'm sorry, the household idols, put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, 
Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. So she told a lie. She had stolen her house, father's household gods, therefore disrespected her father. And in this sense, when she said, I, I cannot rise, there's another message in there that it would have been normal for her to rise up before her father. You know, God tells us that young people should rise up before the hoary head. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have gray hair. There are some people that have gray hair at a very early age, and you might be a lot older than someone. I knew somebody that at age of 26, he had beautiful white hair, uh, got gray really early. Now, some of us don't have much hair at all, so it's hard to have hoary head or gray-headed. Uh, if you don't have any hair at all. But it is clearly that we are to show honor and respect to those who are older. And apparently from this, that was a custom, we might say, at least a custom, if not a law, that you rise up before your father or someone, uh, it, it could by uh, extrapolation perhaps to those who are your elders. But she said, you know, please forgive me, as it were, uh, I, I'm in the manner of women, in other words, didn't feel very well and all, and she didn't rise up. Just one of those little details that we might uh, consider. Latter part of verse 35, and he searched but did not find the household idols. So we find that there were idols at this time. And the idea, according to the Living Bible, and according to many, many uh, Protestant sources, is, okay, they had idols, but they didn't know that they were wrong. Because they didn't know about God's law. Well, let's go a little further. Let's go to Genesis 35. Genesis 35. And we'll begin in verse 1. You know, it's a funny thing. I learned this, I may have told you, over in England where they take your thumbprint or fingerprint, whatever it is. Every time you go through the airport and you check in, at least for foreigners they do that. And mine never seemed to work, so they'd have to use the other hand. But uh, the fellow told me that as we get older, our fingerprints wear off. And... Our fing- you know, the prints in our fingers. And so that's why you always see old people fumbling for the pages, and they never can seem to get them open. And now I understand why old people, when they have the Bible there and they, they can't get that page, they blow. <laughs> uh, when I was young, I never did that. But now I find myself doing what I see old people doing. I'm not old, but... Uh, it's just that I've had a lot of wear and tear on the fingers. They're there, the prints, but it's slippery. Okay, I finally found chapter 35. And verse 1. So if then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. 
Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. Now, why did he want them to get get rid of these foreign gods? There has to be a sense there that he understood that there really is only one God. And he recognized that there was a problem with these foreign idols or gods as they had them. Verse 4, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and all their earrings which were in their ears. So these may have been amulets of some sort. doesn't mean the earrings are wrong, but there was obviously something wrong with these earrings that they had which were in their hands and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. So he put those foreign gods, those idols, away. Now let's go over to the book of Joshua. This is after Moses. But let's look at what it says here in Joshua, the 24th chapter. Joshua 24, and we'll begin verse 2. It says, And Joshua said to all the people, this is toward the end of of his life toward the end of this is the last chapter in the book of Joshua after they entered the promised land. And it says in verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the eternal God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. So he recognized that this, that before, just as we've read, that uh, uh, Nahor had these false, false gods, and they were apparently common at that time, it seems like it. And then down in verse 14, it tells us, Now therefore fear the eternal, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the eternal. So their fathers had served these foreign gods not only in the other side of the river, the other side of the Euphrates, the time of Abraham and before, but also in the land of Egypt before they came out. It says, serve the eternal. And if it seems evil to you to serve the eternal... Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the eternal. Now, again, one could say, I I suppose they could argue and say, okay, well, they did that, but it wasn't a sin. They were just suffering because of Adam's sin, but they didn't know any better. God never told them that there was anything wrong with these. That's the idea that people have. Well, let's go further to uh, Genesis 20 and verse 4. Genesis 20. And we'll notice from this that even a foreigner, you might say, uh, an Abimelech, didn't... Uh, understood that there was a particular sin, or that there was sin in general. 
I'm going to come back here a little bit later, but I just want to bring this point out. Verse 4, Abimelech had not come near her, that is uh, Sarah, and uh, he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? In other words, I didn't know that this woman was the wife of someone else. And God said, you either give her back or you're dead. That sort of thing would probably catch one's attention in the middle of the night. And he's saying, but, but Lord, would you slay a righteous nation also? Now, it is interesting that he uses the term righteous, a righteous nation. Would you destroy a whole nation in innocence? So if they didn't know that there was something wrong, would God destroy all of these people back then? Not, not in this particular instance here, because God doesn't. But it's a statement there that indicates that Abimelech knew something about righteousness and unrighteousness. And he knew that what was done was, was wrong, uh, what, what would have been wrong if uh, he had not found out that this was, uh, that she was not uh, free to marry. What about taking the name of God in vain? Was there any place before Moses that this was considered a sin? Well, let's go to the 15th chapter. And verse 13, Genesis 15:13, it says, Then he said to Abraham, or Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Verse 14, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Now, why would God judge a nation? if they didn't know the difference between right and wrong. It says, also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they will come out, your descendants will come out with great possessions. And then in verse 15, it says, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity. The sins, the transgressions of the Amorites is not yet complete. They haven't descended into total, complete debauchery. So here it speaks of iniquity or sin. So obviously there was some, uh, there was sin prior to Moses. There had to be a law. I guess the question always comes up, did they know it? Did they know that there was a sin? Let's go to Leviticus. This is after Moses had come. But let's notice what it says here in Leviticus 18. And we'll begin verse 3. Leviticus 18, 3. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, uh, you shall not do. Don't do according to what the Egyptians did. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances, in the laws and rules that they have, in that sense. It doesn't mean that we are disorderly people, but their ordinances, their religious ordinances, of course. Now let's skip down to verse 21. 
And you shall not let, uh, let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the eternal. You should not profane the name of your God. And then in verse 27 it says, For all these abominations, having their children pass through the fire to Molech, also profaning the name of your God, all these abominations the men in the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. The land was defiled because of these transgressions. And God was allowing them to get to a certain place before he destroyed those people. Now we come to an interesting commandment, the fourth commandment. And that is the commandment regarding the Sabbath. And what's interesting is that this is the one that everybody wants to get around. Murder, adultery, although today's world is different, but nevertheless, when I grew up, at least those things were considered wrong. Uh, and, and nobody was going to defend those things. Today, actually, we do have people defending, saying a little bit of adultery could be good for your marriage. That Actually, that goes back to the time when I graduated from high school, first time I ever heard that. Probably been around a long time, but uh, there are actually those who will argue that point, as well as others who would certainly argue against it, even in this world. But you leave it up to man. If there's no law, people have different ideas on that. But when we come to the Sabbath, let's begin in the New Testament with the book of Mark in the second chapter, and I'll read one verse there. Uh, this is where uh, Jesus' disciples were plucking grain on the Sabbath day. And um, the Pharisees were criticizing them for that. But verse 27 makes a very simple statement. This is where Dr. Merrith always taught us we should begin on this subject of the Sabbath. Not in the Old Testament, but the New Testament. It says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so the question that comes up is, when was the Sabbath made? It was made for man, for man's benefit. Not against man, but for man. And so when was it made? Was it made with Moses? Well, of course not. You all know the answer to this back in Genesis, the second chapter. We see that it was made, and there would be those who would dispute that it was a command. But if it wasn't a command, why did God do it long before Moses ever came around? There was no Israelite. There was no Moses at the time. There were only Adam and Eve. That's all we had at that point in time. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. Verse 2 of chapter 2. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day. God pronounced a blessing on that particular day and sanctified it. Now, sanctify means to set apart, usually for a, a holy purpose. God sanctified the seventh day after he had blessed it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. 
Now, people can read this, and they do read it, but they reason around it. And they say there's no command here for man to keep the Sabbath. And yet when we come to Exodus, the 16th chapter, we come to an interesting statement. Moses is here, that's true, but there has been no law given in terms of the Ten Commandments in general. Uh, They had not arrived at Mount Sinai yet. There was... uh, no codification, no you know, listing, no statement, nothing written on stone at this point in time. And yet in verse 4 of, of Exodus 16, it says, Then the Eternal said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day. Why? Why was God going to do this? He said that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, here's a clear statement that there's a law. This is before Moses got to Mount Sinai. When I first read this when I was much younger, I thought, well, yeah, but it's kind of in the same time frame. But look, if you make a contract with someone, if you make a covenant with someone, what is stated before, it's not, it doesn't count in a sense. All the time you have contractors who will tell you, or salespeople, they'll tell you everything. What do they always say? If it's not in writing, uh, you have no case. It's got to be in writing. And the fact is that God is not trying to pull something over on them. He is going to test them to see if they will keep his law. Now, that means the law was in effect at that time. And then we could read a little bit later uh, in the chapter. As we know, they went out for six days and they gathered manna. On the sixth day, there was twice as much. And God told them to save that over the next day because there would be nothing on the seventh day. And as is always the case, there are individuals who don't believe God. And so they went out. They looked for manna on that seventh day and they didn't find any. But notice verse 28, And the Eternal said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? This wasn't the first time they disobeyed God. He said, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Now notice it says commandments, plural, and my laws, plural. What he tested them on was the Sabbath day. But he's saying, you, in a sense, he's saying, you continue to violate my commandments, plural, and my laws, plural. So it wasn't the Sabbath only. This is the test commandment. We used to always call it the test commandment. And I think that uh, for a long time, I didn't really understand why it was a test commandment. I used to think it was a test commandment because this is the one that I always run into, especially in high school. It was testing me a whole lot more than others. But it's the test commandment because he said, I will test you whether you'll keep my laws or not. Back in verse 4. And he found out that they weren't very faithful in it. Or at least some of the people were not. So here is a clear statement that commandments, plural, and laws, plural, are in effect before Moses. I'm sorry, before they got to Mount Sinai. So you can't write them off as... 
is old covenant. And that's the point that we're making here. Yes, Moses was there, but the covenant had not been made. So if we say, well, the old covenant does away with all this, this was prior to the old covenant. Very, very clearly so. What about honoring mother and father? The fifth commandment. Well, you can look over in Luke, the third chapter, and verse 38. And it says that Adam was a son of God. That's in the list of uh, Christ's genealogy. And it gets all the way back to Adam. It traces it backward. And it says Adam was a son of God, Luke 3:38. Now, when Adam took the wrong tree, he obviously dishonored his father. Because God was his father. We see another example of someone dishonoring his father. And although it doesn't call it sin in this particular case, it's very clear that it was understood that what was done was a very bad thing. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, we'll begin in verse 21. We will if I ever get there. See, this is not my regular Bible either, but my regular Bible is falling apart in the book of Genesis. And so I thought I'd bring this other one, which is not as worn. Okay, we're there. Genesis 9, verse 21. Verse 20. Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk. Um, it doesn't say it was a sin, but obviously it had consequences. And he became uncovered in his tent. A lot of times people don't understand what is being involved here, but one of his grandsons uh, was performing a, a very disgusting act here involving Noah. And Ham, the father of Canaan, it mentions Ham as the father of Canaan. Why would it mention Canaan here unless Canaan had something to do with this? Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. So Ham saw something that was going on here, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. He told them, look, there's something that we need to take care of. And Ham was probably so disgusted that he let his brothers take care of the problem. So it says, uh, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. It wasn't just that he didn't have clothes on. There was something more going on here, obviously. And Canaan was involved, as we see from the, the verses that follow. But there was a respect on the part of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But there was a a disrespect for the grandfather here on the part of Canaan. It says their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. They didn't even want to, to see what was going on. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. The younger son, meaning his Here referred to Ham's younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. 
And he said, blessed be the Lord, uh, the eternal, the God of Shem, and so forth. But Canaan was the one that was under a curse. They knew that this, this was wrong. And he was disrespected, but we see the respect that his actual son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, had for him. They are showing him honor or respect. Now, again, one could say that um, it doesn't specifically say that it's a sin. So let's take a look at some passages that do tell us that sin, not just acts that are sinful, but there are sins that people knew were sins. The next one is you shall not murder. So let's go to Genesis, the fourth chapter. This is the one that we all know, the first murder, Genesis 4. And verse 3. It says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to, to the eternal. Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat. And the eternal respected Abel and his offerings, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, there's been a discussion at the office here a little bit about what was going on here. There are really two things. There's something about the offering, it would seem, that was uh, was improper. But attitude was was also uh, perhaps the bigger problem. The attitude created the problem with the offerings in some way. We don't know exactly uh, what was done with the offerings, Uh, There's a lot we don't know here, and sometimes we have to simply say we don't know everything about it. But there is something that's going on here, and the fact of the matter is that God did not respect Cain and his offering, verse 5. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Verse 6, so the eternal said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, notice, sin lies at the door. Now, here's a clear statement that sin was in existence at that time. Sin lies at the door. It's just around, you you keep up this attitude and it will produce a sinful action. And his desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So God was giving him right counsel. You need to control your emotions. You need to rule over it, not let it rule you. Now, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass that, as we know, he killed his brother. And he lied about it. So we have that problem as well. But very clearly, murder was a sin. Not only murder, but he just says sin lies at the door. He didn't even say at that point, what the violation would be, but he says, if you don't get your attitude straight, then the actions that follow are going to be sinful. So there's a clear statement that sin existed, not just with Adam and Eve, but also uh, with their sons. There's obviously uh, knowledge of sin. What about adultery? Go to Genesis, the 20th chapter. We were there a little earlier. But let's look at it a little bit more closely. Genesis 20. And 
And we'll begin in verse 1. It says, Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. Now Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. You're a dead man because she belongs to somebody else. This is where we read before, but Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? If you're going to kill me, are you going to slay a whole nation that is righteous or at least is not guilty of something? Did he not say to me, she is my sister, and she even she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. So even the wording here seems to indicate that there was an understanding of what is innocent, what is integrity, as opposed to what is not. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So this is a word that obviously uh, Abimelech must have been familiar with, sin. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die. This is the penalty for what you would, if you don't do it. There's a penalty for sin, and that's death. It says, you and all who are yours. Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. So all of them knew the problem here. And the men were very afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Here's that word. Now, you could argue and you can go and look up the word sin and transgression and all these sort of things, but it's very clear that it is a transgression of a law that's involved here. You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did, you, uh, what did you have in view that you have done this, uh, this thing? And then Abraham tried to uh, justify his, his actions because he thought that they would kill him. Apparently Sarah was quite a beautiful woman at age, uh, you know, 80s, 90s, whatever she was at this time. She was quite elderly, but uh, still very beautiful, kind of like my wife, uh, who's 39. (laughs) So here, adultery was recognized as a sin. Let's go to chapter 39, 39 and verse 7. This was with Joseph, and he was a handsome chap, apparently. 
Now it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. That's about as straightforward as you can possibly get. Uh, my, My feeling on this is that probably she had been a little bit more subtle before flirting with him. I, I would guess, I don't know, but that's usually the way things go. And uh, I, it, Unless you get into our hookup generation where, you know, it, it goes from hello to uh, let's go to bed. But she cast longing eyes on Joseph. She had been seeing him working there for quite some time. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. So this had been some time that he'd been working for him. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness, and notice, and sin against God? There was a sense here that it was not only a wrong thing to do, a disloyal thing to do to somebody else, but he understood that it was a sin against God. Now, are we to assume that the only people that knew what sin was was the the ones who were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth, and Joseph in this particular case? He knew that his master would not go along with this. It was considered an evil at that time, but he said he would sin against God. So it was that she spoke to Joseph day by day, that, and we know the rest of the story. The point is that here's, again, an example of sin before Moses, long time before Moses. We're told not to steal. We know that Adam and Eve stole what belonged to God, that Rachel stole her father's idols. We're not to bear false witness. We know that Abraham lied, as we just read. Uh, we know that the devil lied to Eve. So let's go over to John, the 8th chapter, and let's notice something here. John, the 8th chapter, and verse 44. It says, Jesus said to the, uh, the Pharisees at that time, he said, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Who was it that inspired these lies? Well, he he lied, no doubt, to the angels, but he lied to Eve and He inspired people to do the same. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So we see that lying was also a problem. It's also a sin. And very clearly, that was something that was done before Adam and Eve. What about coveting? That's one that we'd think, where do we find that in the Old Testament? Well, in Genesis 3, verse 6, remember the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, and she took of the fruit. Well, notice over in 1 John, the second chapter, 
that description is no doubt where John was coming from in 1 John, the second chapter. And we would look at verses 17, or 15 to 17. says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, well, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to be seen. And the pride of life, it was something to make one wise, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So she lusted after these things whether Adam lusted after those things or whether he simply was too uh, weak-kneed to stand up to his wife in this particular case, putting her before God. Uh, we, We don't know all the details of that. But clearly, there was lust at this time. Let's look at one more law of God that was in effect before Moses. Let's go back to Genesis again, and here we'll see that there's a law. It may not be called that, but clearly we know later on that it was a law, and so why would we assume that it was not a law at this time? We, we could read chapter 6 and see that the thoughts and intents of the hearts of man were only evil continually. It was a very violent world. Murder was was apparently common. But here in the seventh chapter, we'll get to the heart and the core of this. Then the Eternal said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Notice he was righteous before him. Everybody else was unrighteous. What is righteousness? All your commandments are righteous. That's what defines righteous, according to the Scriptures. So if there is righteousness and unrighteousness, there had to be a law that was behind it all. And so he tells him to get on the ark. In verse 2, he says, You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. So this is something that so many people read right over, who read the Bible, they they don't really consider what it means to be clean or unclean unless they read further. What we find here is that there is a difference between, between clean animals and unclean animals. We don't know until the time of Moses what the difference was. But Noah knew the difference. Noah and his sons knew the difference. And then let's go to a passage of Scripture that is often used to say that we can eat whatever we want to. Over 1 Timothy 4, this is a passage that sometimes is given in a sermonette, but I'll take the time to explain it here. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, this is verse 1, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, 
that some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So these doctrines come from demons, inspired by demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry. Now, what religious organization forbids people to marry? There's one out there, the least their priest cannot marry, not at this time, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It says, every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified, that is, set apart by the word of God and prayer. Now, the point that I want to make here, a couple points, one of them is that foods which God created to be received. So these were created at the very beginning. Now, when we read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we find that there are characteristics of clean animals and clean fish and clean birds, and there are characteristics of that which is unclean. The birds are a little bit more difficult to discern. You have to take the clean ones and, or the unclean ones and put the characteristics together. Not too many people eat vultures, so we don't have to worry about those things and crows and ravens and most of the unclean birds people don't eat. But there are a few that, that people do. Uh, God created things. He created fish that should be eaten with scales and fins. We have fish that swim like any other fish, such as a catfish swims about, but it doesn't have scales. It just has fins. I'm sorry, yeah, it has fins but no scales, and it's a skin fish. So God made certain characteristics so that we can discern what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat at the beginning. He didn't wait till Moses and say, okay, now all of you line up here and we'll give you cloven hoofs. Or we're going to give you a different kind of hoof. Or we're going to take the, the, uh, the extra stomachs there so that you, uh, you can't chew your cut anymore. God didn't do it that way. He did it from the beginning. God knew what was going to be clean and what was not. And so when Noah comes along, he knows what's a clean animal and what's an unclean animal. Very clearly, the law of God was in place and Noah knew what it was. And if no one knew that, do we think that he didn't know other laws? Let's look at some scriptures that nail the coffin shut. Can you think of any? Just think right now. Okay, what have we not covered that would tell us that there were laws before Moses? Well, let's start with Genesis, the 26th chapter. You probably could ask for a show of hands how many already have that. If you didn't, you're saying, oh, yeah, I should have had that one. I should have had V8 because it was uh, very clearly there. Genesis 26. I can see that's an old advertisement that our young people don't know. Genesis 26 and verse 4. This is well before Moses. And they haven't even gone down to Egypt yet. And God says, 
to Isaac. He says, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Why was God going to bless him? Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That's really all that we need. I could have read that scripture and sat down. Probably would have been more effective. You would all remember that sermon. It's like a fellow said that he'd go to his congregation, a pretty tough congregation, he'd shout, you know, and they'd get up there and said, Good morning, everyone. And they'd shout back, Short sermon. That was... So if I'd read this and sat down, you'd probably all remember it. But how do you get around this? How do you take this and say, this doesn't exist? But Abraham knew God's commandments, statutes, and his laws, and he kept them. He kept his charge. Commands that were specifically for him, just like the command for Adam was, leave that tree alone. It symbolized other things, obviously, but that was a one-time event, you might say, in a physical sense. We understand that that tree symbolized something and that all of mankind has been doing the same thing in a spiritual sense. They've been rejecting God's command and they've been partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mankind wants to determine for himself what's right and wrong. But that was a specific command that was given to, to Adam and that particular tree, so we may not have sinned by going up there and finding the tree and partaking of it, but we've spiritually partaken of it, haven't we? And all of that world before the flood, it was destroyed for wickedness. The wages of sin is death, and God brought death upon all those people when it got out of hand. But Abraham obeyed God's voice, kept his charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. His laws, plural. And you would think that that would suffice. I brought this scripture up to somebody some years back. Remember when Worldwide was getting off track, for those of you who are old enough to remember that. A lot of you probably aren't anymore. It's amazing how fast time goes by and you realize that we have a whole new generation that was not alive at the time. I was too young to know. But sermons like this were heard, and people stood, sat there and, and they, uh, they absorbed it to some degree. But then somebody came along and said that, oh, that's Old Covenant, you don't have to obey that. And they believed it. So I asked somebody at that time, I said, how do you get around this? And there are some really smart replies and some that are really stupid. And this was a stupid one. I'm not sure what a wise one would be in this particular case, but some come up with more clever arguments. But he said, well, I don't know what laws it's talking about, but it wasn't the Sabbath and it wasn't clean and unclean meats. Now, if there are any laws that we know of for sure that were in effect, it was a distinction, meaning there must have been a law, there was a distinction between clean and unclean meats. And as we've seen, when God said, how long you refused you to keep my laws, 
in my, keep my law, he was talking about the Sabbath day. And we see when God instituted or created the Sabbath, that was for not the Jews, but for man, that's so clear. It's interesting that those are the things that people want to get away from. It's not you shall not kill, you shall not steal or, or murder or so forth. They want to get around the Sabbath day. They want to get around the uh, the laws of clean, unclean meats, the holy days, and, and that sort of thing. We, we, By the way, we don't see where the holy days are mentioned before Exodus. Uh, people sometimes want to question that, and they see that uh, unleavened bread was prepared when the angels came, and they tried to read the holy days into that. I... I, I think we just leave that alone. We don't know. We have no proof of that. But we do know clean and unclean meats were law. We know that the Sabbath was. We know the Ten Commandments in general were, as we've seen today. Those were all in effect one way or the other. Let's go back to the New Testament and go over to Second Peter. Second Peter 2. And we'll read verses 4 through 8. 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, so there were laws that affected the angels, and they sinned. Sin is a transgression of law, God's law. But cast them down to hell, or a place of restraint, Tartaru, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah... So God did not spare all those people before Noah that were alive at the time. He said, uh, did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people. Notice, a preacher of righteousness. Now, what did Noah know? He was a preacher of righteousness. So when people say that, well, nobody knew about these things, or as I read there, the... the uh, uh, a living Bible, these people didn't know what was right and wrong because God hadn't told them. There was a long period of time, decades that went by, when they were building this ark. It was a witness against them, but it says here he was a preacher of righteousness. Psalm 119, where's what, 172? Uh, where it says that... Uh, all your commandments are righteous. Is that the, the psalm? So he was a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher of the laws of God very clearly. Bringing, it says, uh, a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. The penalty for sin is death. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who would afterward uh, live ungodly. Now, how would it be an example if nobody knew what the problem was? It seems today that our world, people don't think there's anything wrong with Sodom and Gomorrah. But people know that the Bible is against it, at least to some degree. But when you destroy those cities and the others that are around there, for their actions, it was an example. Making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So how do we know what's godly and what's not? God has to define that. And he delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. 
for that righteous man, how can it be righteous if he doesn't know what the law of God is? Uh, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Their lawless deeds. Let's go over to um, Jude. Verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own habitation... He is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Notice verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So he was prophesying for way off into the future, and is talking about the people of Jude's day and beyond, especially beyond, uh, ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, do we just remove all those people of his day? Did God somehow give him a message that didn't apply to his day, at least in part, and just off in the future, and yet he calls them sinners? Uh, You know, if you read the context here, he's talking about more than just the people of his day. He's going all the way down to the end of the age. But he's using the example, Jude is, as as, uh, Peter did, of what happened in those early years as a type of what is happening later on. There's no doubt from the biblical record that all ten of the commandments And other laws of God were in effect prior to Moses. Commandments, statutes, laws, as it says there in Genesis 26. So why do do some say that they are not in force or were not in force at that time? The answer is Romans the 8th chapter, verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's really the answer to it all. Some people wonder, well, why did Worldwide go off track? Because they were carnal. There were individuals who could not stand the law of God. And so they go through all these machinations to get around the law of God. Mostly to get around the Sabbath, the holy days, laws of clean, unclean meats, They don't want their neighbor killing them or committing adultery with their wives, although some of them may be guilty of at least the uh, the sexual sins, if not uh, murder. I don't know that they've physically murdered. I guess in a spiritual sense they have. Just as before the flood, just as after the flood, in that time before Moses, just as after Moses, all the way up to the time of Christ, just as after Christ came, just as it is in our world today, 
The reason is simple. They have carnal minds and they don't want to obey God. 